Turn, please, to Ezekiel in chapter 10. I want to read chapters 10 and 11. So it's a lot of reading, so prepare yourself for that. Reading Ezekiel 10 and 11. Your Bible should be turning to Ezekiel rather automatically. By now, I trust. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word. I pray that you would help us as we consider this word. And I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, most especially hearts to embrace the truth. May we um, see, Father, that which is necessary for us to see. Still our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 1. I, and of course the I there is Ezekiel. I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of sapphire above the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim. The Lord said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. As I watched, he went in. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. When the Lord commanded the man in linen, take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, the man went in and stood beside a wheel. Then one of the cherubim reached out his hand to the fire that was among them. He took up some of it and put it into the hands of the man in linen, who took it and went out. Under the wings of the cherubim could be seen what looked like the hands of a man. I looked and I saw beside the cherubim four wheels, one beside each of the cherubim. The wheels sparkled like chrysolite. As for their appearance, the four of them looked alike. Each was like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of four directions the cherubim faced. The wheels did not turn about as the cherubim went. The cherubim went in whatever direction they heard, uh, I'm sorry, whatever direction the head faced without turning as they went. Their entire bodies, including their backs, their hands, and their wings were completely full of eyes, as were their four, four wheels. I heard the wheels being called the whirling wheels. Each of the cherubim had four faces. One face was that of a cherub, the second the face of a man, the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an angel. Then the cherubim rose upward. Uh, These were the living creatures I had seen by the Kabar River. When the cherubim moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the cherubim spread their wings to rise from the ground, the wheels did not leave their side. When the cherubim stood still, they also stood still. And when the cherubim rose, they rose with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of of the God of Israel was above them. These were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kabar River and I realized that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and four wings, and under their wings was what looked like the hands of a man. Their faces had the same appearance as those I had seen by the Kabar River. Each one went straight ahead. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the gates of the house of the Lord that faces east. There at the entrance to the gate were 25 men, and I saw among them uh, Jehazaniah, the son of Azir, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. The Lord said to me, Son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice in this city. They say, will it not soon be time to build houses? This city is a cooking pot, and we're the meat. 
Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon me and he told me to say, this is what the Lord says, this is what you are saying, O house of Israel, but I know what is going on through your mind. You've killed many people in this city and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore this is what the sovereign Lord says, the bodies you have thrown here are the meat and this city is the pot, but I will drive you out of it. You fear the sword, and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the Lord, the Sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and hand you over to foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword, and I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. You will, and you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Now, as I was prophesying, Belatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Ah, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, you brothers, your brothers who are your blood relatives in the whole house of Israel, are those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said, they are far away from the Lord. This land is given to us as our possession. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to the vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Then the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision uh, given by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. As I've been thinking through Ezekiel and asking God what it means I've been uh, the verse that came to my mind from the New Testament you don't need to turn this unless you're terribly quick was from Romans in chapter 11 where the apostle writes consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God sternness to those who fell but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness and I realize in order for us to get a real glimpse of God, a real understanding of Him, we have to consider all of Him, His kindness, and as some versions have it, His severity, to really understand Him. And so I must confess as I read through this, there's a measure of difficulty. But you remember that we find Ezekiel here, and we found him earlier um, on his face before God. Because God had revealed himself, given him a, a vision of who he is. It was quite like the vision we read in chapter 10. But in that vision in chapter 1, when, when Ezekiel sees God in all of his power and all of his glory and all of his holiness, 
And he sees God above the expanse sitting on the throne. He falls on his face. God, you remember, comes to him by the Holy Spirit and lifts him up and gives him ears to hear so that he can hear what God is about to say to him. And then God gives him this word that he's to take to this people, these people in exile. Because you remember that the kingdom of Israel had split after the reign of of Solomon into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom uh, came under the judgment of God and was destroyed in 722 B.C. and now we find ourselves in the southern kingdom about 593 B.C., 592 B.C. and it's about a half a dozen years or so before Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And God has told Ezekiel to prophesy to these in exile because already there have been a couple of sieges against Judah, against the city of Jerusalem, and many have already left and been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon, because it was the tactic of the Babylonians in destroying a people to exile them, and to move them with the hope that they would be able to um, um, synchronize that people with the other people, and therefore lose their culture completely. And so they were in Babylonia, some 700 miles away from Jerusalem, and Daniel had already gone and his buddies in one exile with a number of others, and Ezekiel had already gone in another exile, and there they were. And God has called now Ezekiel to speak this word to the people, and you remember that he was given this prophecy to enact. And part of that prophecy was to lay on one side and then another to speak to the judgment that would come upon the northern kingdom and the, that had come upon the northern kingdom and would come upon the southern kingdom. And he was taken an iron skillet and put it in front of his face as if to say, God's face is now hidden from you. And God's face being hidden from them meant literally that all kinds of devastation would come upon them. And we saw the horrible image of what would take place in Jerusalem when the face of God was removed. And the only word that could describe it, even coming close to describe the horrible situation there, was the word hell. And Ezekiel was to speak of this judgment upon Jerusalem in that way to those people. And then we began to realize, for we saw in another vision, why it is that God was so angry with the people in Jerusalem and why judgment came upon them. And it was because of their worship. It was because their worship was corrupt. And we realized then, if we hadn't realized it before, that God is very serious about how he's worshipped, and he's very serious that it is him that is worshipped, that he is the one who is worshipped, and no one and nothing else. Because any time we worship anything, anyone else other than God, and you even get the sense that even when we come into his presence flippantly, casually, without concentrating our attention and our focus upon him, it is, as he says, it provokes him to jealousy, the kind of good jealousy that a lover would have for the affections of another, the kind of right jealousy that every being, God himself, should have for the honor and glory of God. And so we see that the wrath of God being poured out upon Jerusalem. And now Ezekiel sees this vision. And in one sense, this vision is scarier than all the others. Because what he sees here is the very glory of God leaving the temple. The very glory of God leaving his people alone without him in Jerusalem. Notice in chapter 10 and verse 18. 
after Ezekiel had seen essentially the same picture, the same vision that he saw in chapter 1. This is God. And I think the reason, and the reason I read all of that again was just a cue in your mind, oh, we've seen this before. And what this is, this glorious picture of fire and all of that, is God in all of his holiness. We've seen it before. And, and again, I don't think Ezekiel is being redundant as he relays this prophecy, but he's writing this through, and this is what I saw, so you can understand who it is that he's talking about. And then, so in verse 18, he says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. The glory of the Lord is moving out. And then in chapter 11 and verse 23, he writes, The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. God on his way out of town stops on that mountain. We've all felt loss. We've all known of those who have, have, have died and we have felt their presence, if you will, leaving us. And it saddens us. It not only saddens us, but it can also bring us to a certain measure of fear because if we've loved this person, we begin to think, how am I going to live my life without them? Uh, we've experienced loss in probably a lesser way at times when great statesmen have died and we wonder how are we ever going to get along without them leading. It may be that some of you in school have, have been anxious and to, to sit under and study under a particular professor and that professor moves and you think... How am I, what's going to happen to my career now that then you feel the loss of that person's presence? It may be that in business, a key associate has, has moved on and you've wondered, now what's going to happen to our business? And you felt the loss of that particular person in the context of your life. But you see, this is so much worse. This is God leaving and he's leaving a people who have identified throughout their whole history with the presence of God being with them. I mean, all the way back, if you go back when the Israelites were, were being led out by God, they saw this cloud, which was the presence of God. And they saw this pillar of fire at night, which was the presence of God. And they always had this sense, God is with us. Remember, on another occasion, you heard this read a few minutes ago, that uh, uh, as, 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 as the people had sinned, as they were made the golden calf and all of that, and God says, okay, Moses, you take them, I'll send you and an angel, but I'm not going. And Moses pleaded with God, no, you must go. And God says, all right, my presence will be with you. In fact, when Moses is writing the history of this time to his people in the book of Deuteronomy, he says to them, he says, what other people, what other nation is there that has their God so near to them that he hears them when they pray? He's saying, don't you understand how unique you are, how unique we are? The very God of the universe hears us. He's that close. He's not way over there, but his presence is with us. And that was reinforced when God says to Moses, I want you to make this traveling tent. I want you to make this traveling tent of worship. I want you to make this tabernacle. And in it, I want you to put this holy of holies, this ark of the covenant, because that's where I'm going to dwell. I'm going to dwell among you there. My very presence will be there. And the significance of that presence of God, I think, is laid out best for us to see in 1 Kings in chapter 8. Because in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is dedicating not the tabernacle, but now the temple. 
And in 1 Kings 8 and verse 27, uh, we read this. But will God really dwell on earth? This is Solomon. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. Solomon's no dummy. He understands. And when God says, I'm going to come and live in this little place, that God is bigger than that, and that little place can't contain him. But the most significant thing is to think that while God is huge and nothing can contain him, he's going to choose to come and be present in a special, real, personal way right there among his people. And so Solomon does, in fact, know what that means. Verse 28. Yet, give attention to your servant's prayer and plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. You see, Solomon knew that if God is here, then that means God can see. You remember in this vision that Ezekiel sees, there's eyes all over the place. There's eyes in these wheels. It's because God can see. And as Solomon was thinking about that, God's eyes are upon us. He's thinking, that's great. Because now God will know everything. And he'll know everything that we need. And this is God and his presence is with us. Therefore, he'll supply all that we need. So his eyes are always on this place. His name, his presence is always here. Thus, he'll be able to hear us when we pray. And so the rest of this, Solomon is saying, Oh God, when our enemies come against us, we're going to turn to you and pray. Because we know that you'll see. And we know that when you see, you'll send help and you'll protect us. God, when famine comes our way, we're going to turn to this place and we're going to pray because we know that you'll see our need and you'll supply all the food that we need. And God, when we sin, we know you're going to see that. But when we sin, we're going to turn this way to this place and we know that, you're, we know that your eyes will see. Please forgive us. And so everything about this people is wrapped up in the very presence of God. He will supply their physical needs. He will supply their spiritual needs. He will protect them physically from their enemies. He'll protect them spiritually even from their own sin. And so that's the significance there of the presence of God. And then Ezekiel sees God pulling out to leave the people Utterly alone. Utterly vulnerable. What's now going to happen when their enemy comes against them and they have no place to turn and pray? How will they ever be protected? What happens when famine comes against them and their enemies keep the food out and close the food lines? Who are they going to turn to pray for help? What happens when their own sin turns in on them and against them? Who's going to keep that sin at bay? Who's going to forgive them? Who's going to strengthen them against it? God won't be there to do it. One of the scariest, frankly, passages in Scripture is Romans in chapter 1. We read this a couple of weeks ago and it's been on our minds. I don't think any time we think of these passages as we've been reading that this can get too far from us. But in Romans 1 from 18 to 23, the apostle writes about how we all stand before God without excuse. But then beginning in verse 24, 
He tells them what happens when God's presence is removed so that there is nothing there to restrain our sin. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with one another and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. I always thought that was interesting, that that's there. Just interesting. And, and I, I could make a joke, but I'm not. Because quite seriously, it tells us the great significance of parenting and the great significance of being respected by your children and the great significance of children obeying their parents in that context. I, just, just think about that. They were senseless, uh, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they knew, uh, they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You see, in the presence of God leaves. There's nothing to restrain evil. And as we noted a couple of weeks ago, tremendous evil was going to take place in Jerusalem. Tremendous evil takes place when the presence of God leaves. But the most amazing thing, frankly, about this whole passage to me is that they didn't even notice. They didn't even notice that the presence of God was leaving. Now, Ezekiel did because he saw it. But notice what they say. Back in Ezekiel in chapter 11, verse 3, um, God is saying, well, let me begin with verse 2. The Lord said to me, Son of man, these are the men who are plotting evil and giving wicked advice in this city. And here's the wicked advice they're giving. They say, will it not soon be time to build houses? This city is a cooking pot and we are the meat. Now, what they meant was this. It's a rather odd idiom. I'll have to explain it. What they were saying is this. First of all, everything's fine. Let's build some houses. Now, doom is about to come upon them. There's already been two sieges against the city, which has caused great exile. All the uh, uh, royalty and all the uh, skilled workers have been exiled. And yet they still think everything's fine. They still think their city is protected. They still think all is well. And they re the reason that they use is this odd little saying, this city is the cooking pot, and we're the meat. Now, that doesn't really strike me as all that impressive. But what they meant by that is this. That just as a cooking pot protects the meat that is in it from the fire, which I think is a rather short-term view, <laughs> but go with the idiom here, the little figure of speech, the city protects us. The city is our cauldron, is our pot. We're the meat. So we'll be fine. 
And the reason that we'll be fine is that we're here in Jerusalem. And no doubt we're here in Jerusalem and, and we have the temple. So we're going to be fine. But you see, they weren't fine. Because even though the temple was physically among them, the temple was not spiritually in them. And so they missed the point. Jeremiah puts it very bluntly. Jeremiah had stayed back with them. And in Jeremiah in chapter 7, in the middle of verse 2, we read this. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, what he meant by that was that there were folks in Jerusalem that were walking around and saying, we're safe because there's the temple. There's the temple. There's the temple. So we're okay. We got the temple here. You know, it's, it's too big to put around a chain and put in our pocket like a rabbit's foot. But we're safe because it's there. And as long as it's there, we're fine. And it doesn't matter how we live, what we do, whether we worship God or not. But the truth of the matter is, it does matter. They were just... Missing it, being superstitious. When I think of churches, I'm reminded of the churches that Jesus walked around and reports to us in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You see, everybody thought they were alive in this church in Sardis. If you'd have gone to the gas station in Sardis and said, listen, Sunday's coming up, what church should I go to? They'd have said, oh, go to that one. It's really alive. Because everybody thought it was alive. But it was dead. And nobody knew it. They didn't know it. And as the Spirit of God left that church in Sardis, nobody knew it. Everybody thought, this is fine. This is our church. It's a good church. Everything's great here. But the Spirit of God had left. They were dead. And then in chapter 3 and verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And of course we know that uh, the NIV is trying to make that, and this is no pun intended, more palatable. The word for spit is really vomit. It's, it's just a gross expression. The worst kind of disgust and difficulty. You say, I'm rich and I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. You see, they just thought everything was fine because they had all the wealth that they needed. They had all the stuff that they needed. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And notice then in verse 20, here I am, this is Jesus, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. He wasn't even there. And they didn't even know it. He was standing on the other side of the door. In one sense, his presence had left them. And they didn't even know it. They thought everything was fine. 
No doubt they thought everything was fine, just like the people in Israel thought everything was fine. Oh, we have all that we need. We look around and we have all that we need. And there's this church here, and it's a good one. They're really serious about God there, and I go there. They do all the right stuff there, so I go there, and so I feel good because this church is there. But you see, that isn't the point. The, church, the point isn't, is there a good church there? The point is, is the church in you? Is the Spirit of God in you? Is the presence of God in you? Do you understand that? In the way that you worship. Now, Ezekiel sees all of this. And then all of a sudden he sees this man who seems to recognize, seems to know, Pelatiah. And Pelatiah dies in this vision. Could well be that he died in actuality, that Ezekiel was actually seeing at that moment in time what was going on there, and he'd come back and report this death. And that shocked, it seems, Ezekiel, in the midst of all of this, to realize this is really real. This is really true. The Spirit of God's going to leave, this guy's going to really die. And so he says to God what he's been saying over and over again Is there any hope? Is there any real remnant? Or are you just going to withdraw your presence completely and hell will come on earth? And that's when God gives him this marvelous promise. And we'll spend more time on this marvelous promise when we get to chapter 36, which may take us a little while because it's given in greater detail there. But God says to him in verse 16, I'm going to do what you could never imagine that I'm going to do. The people who are back in Jerusalem think that they're the remnant. They're not. The actual remnant are among the people who are exiled. And nobody has any idea how I can get all those people back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. But I'm going to do that. Now it happens. Those of you who know the history of Israel understand how it happens. And it's really cool. We'll talk about that in Ezekiel 36. But it really does happen. And it's a work of God. And God says, trust me, I'm going to be their sanctuary now. I'm going to protect those who are my remnant, who are out in exile. And then he goes, and I will gather them, verse 17, from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. They'll come back here. They'll see it. They'll get it. And they'll get all of this stuff out of here. Verse 19. I will give them and undivided hearts and put a new spirit in them I will remove them remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws they will be my people and I will be my I will be their god God is saying listen this is it's going to work I have this remnant and I'm going to do this work in them they'll see the corrupt worship because they have new hearts and new spirits and their hearts are undivided that is they're towards me and me alone now how is it that we can tell that group of people from the group of people that Ezekiel is seeing in Jerusalem at that time it's because of their hearts towards God they see the corrupt worship and they get rid of it they have affections for God, an undivided heart towards Him, and desire to worship Him rightly. 
Now, it's interesting, and I speak this by way of contrast. It's interesting, as we read through the scripture, there are times when true believers feel as if God is hiding his face from them. And we read about it in, the, in, in Psalms in a number of different, different places, at least a dozen. For instance, Psalm 88 and verse 5, the psalmist writes, I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. That's a psalmist. He says, I feel like you've cut me off. I feel like you're hiding your face from me. I feel like you're not present with me, really. A number of other occasions, psalmists say, but God, why is it that you're hiding your face from me? Do you know that feeling? That sense that I'm alone here. Well, it's interesting that someone who has that feeling but yet really does belong to God, as the psalmist did, respond not by saying, everything's fine. (laughs) They respond by saying, oh God, please come to me. I'm seeking your face. Don't abandon me. Don't go. Stay here. Reveal yourself. Let me know your presence. Please convince me that you're really here. Forgive my sins. They call upon God. That's the instinct of one who gets into a situation and feels as if the presence of God is left. But the instinct of one who doesn't know God doesn't even know when the presence of God leaves. Now that's scary. It's like the student walking around campus, flunking, thinking they're making A's. It's like the businessman who thinks he's making a profit and yet he's on the verge of bankruptcy. But of course it's even worse than all of that because everything is at stake. And so when we find ourselves without this instinct, without this inclination to pray, that's scary. We find ourselves without this inclination to to lay our lives before God, that's scary. We find ourselves without this inclination to hear from God, that's scary. And thus, let me leave you with this prayer. I prayed it as we started our worship this morning, but it's out of Psalm chapter 86. And David prays this. He simply says, verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. David, David, who God says was a man after my own heart, prayed, God, make sure my heart is undivided, that is, single-heartedly towards you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for me and for everybody here, God, that you would give to us undivided hearts, that we might fear your name. Father, I pray that we are so very sensitive to you, that if we grieve you, we know it, and if we please you, we know it. Father, I pray that always we're sensitive to your being with us, and that that's the very comfort, the very confidence of our lives, that you will never leave us or forsake us.
that very confidence that enables us to stand for truth, that very confidence that enables us to speak the truth in love, that very confidence that enables us to stand in your presence and pray, that very confidence that, that enables us to obey you and to walk by faith, trusting that your wisdom is really, really wisdom and really, really right and that you'll grant to us the strength to do it. So, Father, I pray that you would give to us undivided hearts that we may fear your name today and always. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you about our time together Wednesday night. I remind you also that there are elders available to pray, so please take advantage of that and go there if you have a particular need that they may pray for you and with you. The response to the benediction is glory be to God. Amen. And I put that one there so it would be the last thing on your lips as you leave this worship service that you can acknowledge that the hope of your life, that the confidence of your life is that God's glory hasn't departed but God's glory, His presence is with you. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Glory be to God. Amen.